Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Nathan. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning in this Swelter of mid-July. Hope the summer's going well for you. Uh, we are in the middle of our summer series right now that we're calling The Battle Within, and it is about the tornadoes, as it were, that, that tend to rage inside of us uh, in ways that, that, that sometimes people on the outside aren't even able to see. And today, what I'm going to uh, talk about is the tornado, also known as idolatry. It should be a lot of fun. So, there are two famous accounts in, in the New Testament of men who, by all appearances, had it all. Uh, and yet, both of these men are still searching for answers. One of them is in John chapter 3. His name is Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night with questions, looking for answers. And Nicodemus is uh, wealthy. He's powerful. It says in, in the, the third chapter of John that he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a virtuous man. He's known as a prominent Pharisee and leader in the temple. And here what we have in Matthew chapter 19 is, is what is referred to as a rich, young man. He has great wealth. Commentators and Bible scholars believe he's somewhere between the ages of 20 and 40. Uh, and he's also virtuous. He, he, he is even of the opinion uh, that he has kept every law of God uh, faithfully and perfectly from since he was a child. And uh, so, what you have in this rich young man is a picture of maybe a first century version of Mark Zuckerberg or Beyonce. Unstoppable, right? Uh, from the outside, unstoppable. Wish I had that person's life. What would it be like to be Beyonce for a day or Mark Zuckerberg for a day or the rich young man for a day? And yet the rich young man comes to Jesus on top of the world, or so it seems, owning it, bringing it, or so it seems, and he has the question for Jesus, and the question is, Lord, what do I still lack? This, for me, conjures the memory of something that uh, the famous uh, Los Angeles comedian and actor Jim Carrey 
said. When he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. So, you know, speaking of Mark Zuckerberg, just this last week, I had a very short trip to San Francisco, uh, Silicon Valley area, and I was doing a speaking engagement with um, several of, you know, the sort of native San Franciscans, uh, you know, culture leaders, uh, you know, Christians who are trying to make a difference in everything. And, and so um, many people after the first service asked me, after the early service said, you know, what did, what did you eat? Where did you go for dinner? And uh, what an anticlimactic conversation because the, the only meal I was able to have while I was there was Papa John's pizza in San Francisco. And not, with all due respect to Papa John's, uh, we love you, Papa John's, but uh, it was San Francisco. And, and uh, the only meal that I had was, was with this crowd of people, and I think they were trying to save on budget and stuff, and so they got Papa John. So there you go. That's where I ate for dinner in San Francisco. Um, but I was asking several people, you know, just during kind of the breaks and, you know, what, 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 what is life like in San Francisco? Because I'm always curious, you know, having come from New York City, a global city, the other coast, and now living in Nashville, which is, you know, quickly on, on the path to becoming very coastal, um, you know, in its own right, in the way that, that it operates, uh, even being referred to in L.A. and in New York as the third coast by the major newspapers in both of those locations. And so, so I'm asking these questions to help me get a little bit ahead of where my own city is going. And so I'm asking these Silicon Valley, you know, professionals and such, you know, these, many of them rich, young men and women, What's it like to live your life in San Francisco, to be a dot-com person, et cetera? And the three themes that I got in, in most of the conversations that I had were stressed, tired, and rich. Stressed, tired, and rich. Uh, it's as if they're asking the same question that this young, wealthy man is asking to Jesus. What do I still lack. And, you know, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then most probably the explanation is that I was made for another world. And so, for a lot of people, for a lot of us in here, the optics are good. People would look at our lives and say, man, that person's got it going on. Uh, you know, that person is the next, you know, fill in the blank, you know, your celebrity of choice or your, you know, super successful person of choice. That person is set up to be the next, you know, whoever. You know, the optics are good, you know, making a killing in the market, top of your game, top of your industry. Uh, all appearances indicate that you're living a charmed life, right? But, but you still have this inner voice. What do I still lack? Why is this, you know, whole scene that I'm in not doing for me what I thought it would once I got here? And, and so, so what we've got right now for all of us is a predicament. We have bodies, right, that live in the present world, and yet we are given an invitation here by our Creator to locate our hearts and firmly settle them in the next world, he talks later in this text about building treasures in heaven where, where you know, treasures don't decay and don't get destroyed. And, and so, I'm going to talk about that for the next few moments with a question and a couple of, of answers that, that, that Christ gives. Number one, you know, what do we depend on most? This is sort of a, a diagnostic question that we have to wrestle with in order to get to the solutions. Uh, and then the solutions are to let it all go and then to get it all back. Um, 
So what do we depend on most? So uh, Stephen Covey in Seven Habits of of Highly Effective People writes about your true north or what he also calls your moral compass. It's sort of your guiding principle in life. It's the thing that you, you, you sort of surround with your finances, your mind share, your energy, your investment, your true north, the thing that you live for, the functional Lord and Savior of your life. You know, if you were forced, you know, whatever this thing is, to, to let it go or to lose it, you feel that it would wreck you, it would ruin you, it would rob you of, of, of a desire to live. Uh, it's the thing that consumes most of your time, most of your uh, energy, most of your, your mind share. It's the thing that you feel you have to have in order to be okay. It's, it's you know, it's, it's the thing that triggers your anxiety and your anger when, when it feels threatened or vulnerable. That's what Covey refers to as the true north. And so um, there's a Norwegian playwright who, who talks about similar things uh, in one of his plays. His name is Henrik Ibsen. And uh, Ibsen refers to this whole true north concept as the life lie, the lie that, that, that we build our lives around. And he says this, if you take the life lie away from an average man, you take away his happiness. The life lie, or as Jesus would put it, the idol, the counterfeit savior that you're looking to to be your Jesus. Um, So so Jesus tells a parable uh, in the Gospels of of a man that that the Gospels refer to as a rich fool. And he's not a fool because he's rich, and he's not rich because he's a fool. It just so happens that he's both rich and a fool. And, 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 and the fool part is because he preaches a foolish sermon to himself on a day-to-day basis. And the sermon that he preaches to himself, the, 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 what, the text literally from the original Greek says that he says on a regular basis to his own soul these words, soul. You are rich. You have many things stored up. And therefore, you know, sort of sum sum up the rest of the the parable. Therefore, because you're rich and you have many things stored up, you're okay. You're going to be all right. You have an identity. You have a self. You matter. You're, You're okay. But take the life lie away, which is what Jesus is doing with this rich young man when he says, you want to have what you lack? Take all your possessions, all your money, get rid of it, give it to the poor, follow me, and you'll get what you lack. You'll have what you lack. And so, the important question to ask right now is, what is the sermon that we preach to ourselves? Soul, you will be okay as long as. What's on the other side of the as long as? Soul, you will be okay as long as your net worth is at least this, as long as your grade point average is at least this, as long as your career path gets you at least to here, as long as your kids are happy, as long as you can still fit into a size six, as long as someone is saying to you, I love you. And you see the common thread with idolatry? These are all good things. They're all good things. Money, it's a good thing. You can do a lot of great things with money. But what Jesus is getting after is when when you take a good thing 
and you turn it into an ultimate thing. When you, we, when you take a gift and, and, and pretend that the gift is actually the giver, when, when you take a created thing and act as if the, the created thing is actually your creator, the thing that makes you, that's when things start to unravel internally and the tornado starts to happen on the inside and then you start asking questions like, what is it that I still lack? So for this man, it was two things. It was his money and his virtue. His money. You know, Jesus says, I will tell you what you lack if you really want to know. What you lack is poverty. That's what you lack. What you most need is poverty in order to get what you don't have. So sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. So very important to, to just do a little sidebar, parenthetical sidebar here. Money, having money is not the problem. Job, you know, the Bible tells us is the most righteous person on the face of the earth, and he's also the most wealthy person on the face of the earth. Being wealthy and righteous are not mutually exclusive things. You know, Abraham as well, the father of the faithful, was, was, was quite wealthy. Solomon, you know, asks God for wisdom, and God says, I, I will give you wisdom, and I will also give you wealth. In the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be streets that are paved with gold. Uh, there's going to be jewelry everywhere and, and, and all kinds of, you know, fine gems and such. So wealth is not the problem. It, it's a codependent relationship with wealth that, 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 that Christ is confronting here. A codependent relationship with His wealth, with His affluency, gave Him a disease that New York Times has referred to as affluenza. If you feel lost without it, that means you're going to be lost with it. If, if, if you feel that you can't live without it, it means you can't really live with it because it has you, young, rich man, around the neck, your money and your stuff. He would go on later in the chapter in verse 24 to say it's Yes, and he's pulling together his little tribe of followers, his disciples, and he's saying, guys, you know it's harder, it's more difficult for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven, or it's more difficult than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And of course, his, his disciples are like, oh my goodness, well, who, who can be saved then? Like, what hope is there for any of us? And, and, you know, he says to them, as he always does, you know, do not fear, take heart, because what is impossible with, with human beings is possible with God. So Jesus is not after the man's money. Jesus is after the man's heart and his health and, 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 and through that, his happiness. You know, you can have both Jesus and money, but you can't love both. And Jesus would say elsewhere, you, you have to choose your loyalties. You, you, you can't love one and also the other. You, you can't be in bed with one and also the other. You can't love God and money. You can have God and money. Why? Because God wants His people. He wants the light of the gospel in every single community, every single neighborhood. You know, salt of the earth, light of the world, every square inch. And so it's essential that, that, that there are actually Christians in the world who are completely loaded. 
not just for generosity purposes, but also to, 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 to have access to communities where the gospel is desperately and sorely needed, like communities where this rich young man would, 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 would spend his time or Nicodemus would spend his time. Having and loving money are two very different things. And he's saying, what I'm trying to do is untether your heart from things that will not give you life. I'm trying to untether your soul, detach your soul from things that that cannot give you what you're looking for, and then attach you to the source of life himself as the alternative. And so, so his money can't save him, but then his moral virtue is the other thing that he's preaching to himself. You know, I've kept all the laws of God. I've been a very virtuous man. You know, and he, you know, he comes to Jesus boldly. He says, what do I lack? And Jesus says, here's what you lack. You, you, you've got to keep the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your parents, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he's confused. He's like, Lord, it's, it's almost as if he's saying, you and I both know this. I've, I've, I've kept all these things since the day of my birth. And then instead of scolding him, instead of getting sarcastic and snarky with him, Jesus looks at this blind man, and it says that he loves him. And he says, okay, you brought it up. I didn't bring it up. You brought it up, so let's go there. And as we go there, I'm going to pull out my scalper, scalpel because we're going to do a little bit of surgery. And I'm going to cut you a little bit, and I'm going to wound you maybe a lot, not because I don't love you, but because I do. And, and, and as I cut you, I'm, I'm actually going to extract your heart from your chest. So let's say, just for the sake of argument, that you have kept faithfully commands 2 through 10 all of your life. Let's just talk about one of them. Let's just talk about the first command. Love, you, know, you should have no other gods before me. And yet, your money, it has you around the neck. It's clear that, that your money and your stuff and, and all the, the things, the pretty things that come along with that, access to certain neighborhoods, access to certain clubs, access to a certain quality of life and certain networks and, 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 and you know, certain celebrities and so on, this is what you're looking to to be your functional Lord and Savior. None of these things are bad things but you can't simultaneously fall in love with them and fall in love with Jesus. You can only serve these things uh, as a conduit of the kingdom of God and as, as, a, as an ambassador and as the aroma of heaven when Jesus is the love of your life. So Jesus, it says, looks at him and loves him because he has compassion for him. And he says, let's start just with the first commandment that you say you have kept, but you haven't. You shall have no other gods before me. Your problem, rich young man, Jesus is saying, is that you are not poor enough. You're rich in money. You're rich in good deeds. And, and both have given you this illusion, have created this illusion, these delusions for you that you're in control of your life and that you've somehow also got God in your pocket because of how well you've kept these commands relative to maybe your peers. So his liability is not so much that he's done anything wrong, but that he seems to have done everything right. That's his biggest liability. That's his biggest weakness, that he's a self-made man. You know, E.F. Hutton, uh, some of you aren't nearly old enough to, to have any idea who E.F. Hutton is or what, what E.F. Hutton stands for, but there's these old commercials, financial institution, 
And, and one of the taglines on the commercial was, you know, E.F. Hutton, we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. And so that's the posture of the rich young ruler. I've, I've, I've earned it. And Jesus is saying, mm, mm-mm. the only thing standing between you and the kingdom of God, sir, is not your sin, but your righteousness. It's not your dirty deeds. It's your damnable good works. Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther, Martin Lloyd Jones, in his magnificent commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, which I, I can't wait to be our kind of extended sermon series, um, you know, this coming ministry year. But here's a little foretaste of that, of what Lloyd Jones says in his commentary. There is the mountain called the law of God that you have to scale the heights that you have to climb. And the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain which you are told you must ascend is that you cannot do it, that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. Do you hear it in his question? Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life. You don't do anything to inherit something. You receive it. You fall asleep like the baby is asleep during the baptism a moment ago. What a beautiful picture that was of the gospel. Receiving water like the ground receives the rain. That's what the gospel is. Those who get it understand, Jesus is saying, that that that's the posture I'm calling for. Not for you to do more, 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 but for you to rest there and receive the rain. So, here are the two kind of takeaways after we wrestle down the what do we depend on most question. And the first is, let it go. You know, Jonah, the prophet, says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. It's essentially the same thing that that Jesus is saying to the rich young man. You know, what you, th- what you think will make you rich is actually making you poor. What you think is going to make you strong is actually making you weak. What you think is going to make you happy is also making you sad. Did you catch this? As he walks away from Jesus with his money, because you can't love both at the same time. You, you can't be in a romance with both at the same time. As, as he chooses romance with his money instead of with Jesus, he walks away with all of his money, all of it, didn't let go of a, not even, not a tenth of it, not a bit of it. He's walking away, and it says he's walking away sad. Sad, stressed, tired, and rich. And so Jesus says, let it all go. The thing that you have been banking on, quite literally, to give you life to the full, it's going to leave you feeling empty. So Jesus is saying, you know, let it all go, your, your stuff, for you, uniquely for you, sir, young, wealthy man, you've got to let it go. For other people, it's, it's other things, but this is what you have to let go of. Sell it, give it away, follow me. Why keep your umbilical cord plugged into things that take life from you instead of give life to you? Why forfeit the grace that could be yours? Give it all to me, he's saying, your money your religion, your relationships, 
the recognition that you crave, every crutch that you're leaning on, put me in front of all of it. Put me first and, and, and trust me entirely to decide what your life should look like. Let go of control. Let me decide how much power you should have, how much influence you should have, what people think of you, the dreams that you have for marriage and children and such, what you think your net worth should be. Let me control all of that. Release it. Relinquish it. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Give it all to me. Time to cut the emotional umbilical cord. Or like, like Bonhoeffer says, almost on the way to his death in Hitler's Germany, because of his faithfulness to Jesus, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And the only way that we're going to find life, Jesus says, is to die. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be an heir of the kingdom, he must deny himself daily, take up a cross, follow me. And part of that denial is, is, is denying ourselves the right to offer anything to God that, that, that would somehow, you know, turn into a transactional, you know, meritorious moment where He, you know, says, you don't need saving. You've kept all these things since you were a child. No, we have to deny and renounce that. We have to stop depending on things that are not God, and we have to stop depending on ourselves, he's saying, because it's those who lose their life that will find their life. And for others, maybe it's not money. Maybe it's, you know, finding our identity and our, our sexuality or our social rank or grade point average or body type or, or winning, you know, being number one, being first, family. I fill in the blank. I mean, how far is Jesus asking us to go with this sort of renounce it all thing, let it all go thing? Here's how far he goes. Verses 29 and 30. Even if you have to let go of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children, even family on baptism Sunday, we're saying this. Are you serious, pastor? You know, that baptism moment, that was actually a symbolic act of, of, of parents holding their children with open hands before God. Because ultimately, those parents know that it is for the child's health for God to be their primary father and for God to decide how their stories should be written. It's an act of surrender. You know, like it was for Abraham going up the hill where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, whom your heart is tethered to, take him up and then give him up. Since the only way you're going to get him back is if you give him up. You know, he says in a parallel passage, Jesus does in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. Hyperbole is when you, you make an overstatement because it's so important that you get your point through, that you, you make a statement that, 
that, that, that is so overboard that it, it, it jars the person into full attention so that you can drive the point home. What he is saying here is this. To get what you lack, rich young man, you have to be so tethered in your heart to Jesus that your love for Jesus will look like hatred. Or, I'm sorry, your, your love for mother and father and children and everything else will look like hatred in comparison to, to, to your love and affection for Jesus. You know, the most important people in your life, he says, you've got to let them go. Because the secret to really loving them, this, this is… This is really hard. The secret to really loving the people that you love the most is to hate them in, this, in the way that Jesus is saying. In other words, for Him to be the, the most important supreme love of your life and to put them behind Him. And, and the great thing is, when, when, when you're a husband and you love Jesus more than you love your wife, you end up loving your wife better than you, you would otherwise. If you'd put her before him, you enter into codependency instead of a love, you know, engagement. And if you're a wife and, and, and you put Jesus above your husband, you end up loving your husband better than you would if, if, if the love hierarchy was, was in the reverse. Instead, it would be a codependency thing that, that, that's more based on neediness than it is serving the other. Or, or when you're putting Jesus, you know, first above above your company or above your success or above your business. You become the best kind of boss who treats your, your, your staff justly and generously, and, 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 and the last thing you want to do is exploit them for your own personal gain. And as an employer, if, 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 you, if you put, you know, Jesus above your sort of career advancement, you actually, be, you actually get more advanced typically because you become a better, more loyal worker regardless of the circumstances around you. And one of the things I wish somebody would have told me when I was entering my teen years, you know, when I was about to, you know, enter middle school, when Jesus is first in the heart, that's really the only way I can lose my anxiety about popularity and social rank and, and things of that sort. And I wish somebody would have told me that the ones who tend to make the most friends are the ones who aren't doing anything they have to in order to have friends, including speaking poorly of people, treating, you know, bullying people in order to have friends over here, you know, saying gossipy, negative, you know, spiteful things about people over here in order to get the approval of people over here. Yeah, I wish somebody had told me early on that that's actually not the way to get friends. That's the way to lose friends. And, and even the, the people you think your friends don't trust you because you're throwing other people under the bus and gossiping and, and bullying and things like that. Like the way to have friends is to not care how many friends you have. Because when you don't care how many friends you have, you're free to love the people in front of you. You know, I read a statement the other day that, that really resonated Cool may win high school, but character and kindness wins life. But really the only way we can become people of character and kindness is, is to go back to what Lloyd-Jones was saying. Is that we're, we're incapable of becoming people of, character and, people of character and kindness unless and until you know, our, our, our hearts are, are injected and animated with the love that is already ours in Christ, which, which is, brings us to the last thought. You know, once you let it all go, that's when you start to get it all back. 
you know, verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my sake, Jesus says, will receive 100-fold and receive eternal life. You know, we might ask, okay, let's just say for the sake of the argument, the rich ruler had given all of his money and stuff away. How would he have gotten it back? He would have gotten it back in a different currency. It wouldn't have looked the same as, as being loaded, perhaps. But he would have been rich in a, in a more enduring, abiding, lasting way. Remember this formula for the you know, rich young man and all of us. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Because the greatest riches here is, is, is in what Jesus is offering this man and us, himself. Jesus is the treasure in heaven, now seated at the right hand of God the Father, you know, in whom all the fullness dwells. From him, to him, and through him are all things. And he is ours. We are our beloved's, and our beloved's is our, our beloved is ours. You know, what kind of king, what kind of cosmic majesty would love us when we don't love him, as was the case with the rich ruler, looked at him and loved him. How far did he go to demonstrate his love? He, what does he do? He gave up his son, his only son. It's as if Jesus hated his own life. It's as if the Father put us first and put Jesus second when Christ was substituting for us there at Calvary on the cruel cross, which, which represented His misery and betrayal and alienation and our freedom and our wealth. You know, Jesus is the only one who can truly say, all of these laws I have kept since I was a child, and yet He was the one who took the punishment for us. He's the only one who was truly rich he was a truly rich young man who became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. You know, so people who are into art, particularly paintings and sculptures, uh, know this, that, that the way that you assess the value of a painting or a sculpture is, is, is a very simple, simple formula. Whatever the highest bidder is willing to pay, that's how much the art is worth. So Picasso uh, painting uh, called Woman of Algiers, auctioned off recently, well, not too recently, but fairly recently, for a staggering $179 million for a painting. That's the actual value of that art. What is the value that God put on your life and on my life? What is the value that God put on the life of the rich young man who had to be, become poor in order to become rich? Jesus truly paid it all. He truly sold all that he had and gave it away to the poor, to us, to the truly poor, so that he could love you even when you don't love him. And what better reason is there or could there possibly be to love him first? Let's contemplate that now as we pray and head to the Lord's Supper. Will you please pray with me and as the elders and leaders and pastors come forward and children come in.